0: So you can see in my struggle and transition from this to reading the gospel, part of reading the gospel is a deacon's job. And um, our bishop has talked in the last couple visits to a couple men here um, who I think are probably called to the diaconate and um, who are pondering it. Um, But we'll have to encourage those three to get a move on. But I wouldn't mention Trung Dom's name or David Count's name or Steve Bowman's name at all because I don't want to call them out or embarrass them. But um, he has talked to Trung Dom, David Count's, and Steve. Oh, sorry, Steve Bowman. But we will keep praying for those guys because I think that all three um, would be really good at that. Uh, So we just keep praying for just whoever gets called to that ministry. Um, Yeah, so. Uh, that would be great. Let's uh, let's open with the word of prayer. Uh, Father God, we, we thank you so much for this time together. Lord, as we um as we just kind of ponder a prayer this morning, Lord, uh, as we think about it, as we talk about it, um, I ask that you would just um, that you would just speak through me. That you would close our ears to any air that I may speak. Open them. Just really to what you have for us, even if that means changing my sermon around. And uh, Lord, I pray that, um, that you would bring to mind questions that folks have, and, and let's just go for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was uh, just at a deliverance conference. I was training, and I've got a seat here, by the way. I had a, a little bit of an antibiotic mishap that got my tendon. Do not take fluoroquinolones, no matter what your doctor tells you. Um, they do mess your Achilles tendon up. Uh, I did also want a cup of coffee because I saw Thule and Tavidjan preach one time. And apparently he's like a Billy Graham's grandson. And one of the cool ways to preach, apparently, is I need to have like a five o'clock shadow and you mess up your hair like a lot of preachers. And then you have a, a seat like this and I need a cup of Starbucks coffee. And that is the way to preach. Unfortunately, I have robes. I do not have a five o'clock shadow because I can't get one. Jonathan Mack mocks me with that. When I was growing a beard, it took me three or four months to get it. Jonathan came back in one weekend and had the exact same amount of hair I had just to mock me. Um, anyway, he's <laughs> it was great. Um, but I don't have all of that stuff, so I could never be the cool preacher. All right. What I was reading this week in Lessons from a Father to His Son, John Ashcroft, writes this, many kids wake up to the smell of coffee brewing. Brewing or the sound of a rooster crowing. My wake-up call was my father's passionate praying. Sometimes I'd ease downstairs and join him. one knee was usually raised, so I'd slip in underneath, shielded by his body as he pleaded for my soul. I never caught Dad praying for our happiness. He realized that the pursuit of happiness for its own sake is a frustrating, disillusioning, often futile effort. Happiness usually hides from those addicted to its sugar while it chases after those caught up in something more lasting than momentary excitement. Now, I never heard him pray for a bigger house, a car, or a bank account. Instead, he prayed that our hearts would be ignited and inspired to do things of eternal consequence. Turn our eyes from the temporal, the physical, and the menial, he prayed, and towards the eternal, the spiritual, and the noble. My father never pressured us towards achievement. He knew that the push had to come from inner reserves, not outward designs. He simply dangled before us the possibilities. And thanks to his example, we sometimes took the bait. A prayer is a powerful thing. At least the prayer of a righteous person is. But most of us don't really understand what a righteous person is. I run into this a lot. A righteous person, if I talk to most people, most people believe a righteous person is a person who does the right thing. And for that reason, we confuse righteousness with legalism. And so we think that the prayer of a righteous man that's answered by God is the prayer of someone who does the right thing all the time. And so a legalist will often come to God and say, Lord, you need to answer my prayer because I've done X, Y, and Z. I've been a good person. And if their prayer isn't answered, I often get, God is a meanie because he didn't answer my prayer. Look at what I've done for him. Now, that varies. I've had people tell me, I haven't murdered anyone. Why isn't God answering my prayer? Wow, that's a great standard. I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've whatever, but I haven't murdered anyone. Other people will have a different standard and they'll say, that's ridiculous, but that's the standard they have nonetheless. A particular amount of good behaviors, or maybe they'll say good intentions, if I have good intentions, or I've lived a Christian life in such a way. But according to John and Jesus, this doesn't seem to be what a righteous person is. And that's not quite how prayer works either. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So John, as he wraps up his letter, he leaves us off with two sections. The first is going to be prayer, and the second we're going to look at next week. And two of the sections are, are pretty powerful. So with that said, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, and let's look at how John concludes this letter. So he concludes this letter with a verse worth memorizing. I always try to give you a verse, and we should have had this, and we should have memorized this verse the whole time. I usually have a memory verse for us. This is the verse that you want to memorize if you want to understand what the epistle of 1 John is about. What's 1 John about? It's about this. First John 5:13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what John's writing about. This entire epistle is so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the core of the faith from the apostle that Jesus loved at the end or towards the end of his life. So we're talking the oldest of the apostles. He's walked through all of this stuff he has lived with Jesus, and now he's writing so that you may know what a believer is, and not that only that you may know that you have eternal life, but that you may know the marks of other believers. As they come into the church, that you may know what a wolf is and what a believer is, and where you must get to and where other believers must get to. And so for this reason, it's interesting to note what the apostle says is critical to the faith, And what is not critical? Of course, this is pointed out in all the other, or many of the other epistles as well, but we often miss that in the noise. We have entire denominations that major on various components of the faith, or in modern times, we have independent churches that have rejected denominations. A lot of people will go to independent churches, and I'm not knocking, people get, oh, Jeff, you're just too mean on independent churches. Look, denominational churches have problems independent churches have problems. One of the things that independent churches do is each one is its own creation. And they kind of major on whatever they want to major on and then they're kind of lost because they don't really draw on tradition. There's nothing else to kind of feed into them. Denominations also have their own weaknesses, but that's kind of what will happen in denominational churches. But all of these, they have weaknesses in that sometimes they major in one vein. Non-denominations will each try to reinvent the wheel, mostly emphasizing those components of the faith which they personally find important. Denominations will tend to kind of focus on several components of the faith to the exclusion of others. But what John is pointing out is that at the core of the faith and absolutely critical to our faith is what? You should know this by now. Let me ask you the question. We've been preaching on this since Easter What is at the core of the faith? Believing in Christ, but what's the core of the faith? Love. Love. Gold star. Love. And particularly, what version of love? What Greek word? Agape. Which the Apostle John uses, and this is a really big gold star which the Apostle John uses interchangeably with the, another Greek word, a city's named after it, philia, right? No, not New York. I, I, heard you, I heard you think that. No, no. Philia, philia, brotherly love. But brotherly love is not used that way by other apostles. It's a different kind of love, but it's still an important love. But agape. This is at the core. You need to understand unconditional love is at the core of the Christian faith. We are called to love God as He loves us. And we are called to love one another as God loves us. And it's agape love that is actually the hallmark of a righteous person. That's what righteousness is. Unconditional love. Are you indwelled by it, and do you express it? The love that God has, does it dwell in you? Are you living in it, and are you expressing it? Not not the love that the world has, and how the world defines love. Love equals tolerance, or... Right now, love equals intolerance of everything we hate, which is now the new version of love. love. Love has changed since the 70s, right? The world's love always changes. This love of God is different. It is unconditional love, but it's the love of God towards us. And now we express that. That's the hallmark of a righteous person. And we miss that when we fall into legalism. <clears throat> so our obedience will actually flow from agape, right? It flows from agape. It's not simply obeying commands. We obey because we love God, and our obedience flows out of that love. Now, it's something that we often miss. New Christians, we just start obeying, and that's a good thing to do, right? A little children obey. But we obey first as little children because we love mommy and daddy. We forget that. They love you, and they obey you. Mommy and daddy say it. Mommy and daddy are our whole world, so it must be true. And so we do it. We might test against mommy and daddy, but we love them. We love God, and so we obey. And that's where obedience comes. The legalist doesn't really love, so the legalist wants something. The legalist has a register. So if you've ever run into legalists, and legalists are in all kinds of things, but the legalist wants to get. So if you're in a relationship with the legalist, if you're married to a legalist, or if you are a legalist, but if you're married to a legalist, or if you're the child of a legalist, then you understand how this works. The legalist will always say to you, you need to do X because I've done all these things for you. Look at what I've done for you. You need to now go do X or Y, or Z. It may be your mom saying that to you, or your dad saying that to you. It may be your wife or your husband saying that to you. It may be your boyfriend saying that to you. If you love me, you must now sleep with me, or whatever. That's what the legalist says. And if you're on the receiving end of that relationship, you will inherently know that something is wrong. What's wrong? You're being used. They don't really genuinely love you. That's not love. Right? That's how a legalist thinks. They may not understand it themselves, by the way. A legalist needs to learn what love genuinely is. John tells us that we are called to share the love of God with others, which is, and of itself, a natural outgrowth of the agape love of God. If you truly know this love, how can you not want to share it? So the proof, then, John says, of being indwelt by God is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can simply not be a Christian and not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When you are a Christian, it's the Holy Spirit that comes to indwell you, right? So the proof of being a Christian, then, is you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has begun changing you. Now, this is something you need to understand. We all start from different places. I may have started from one spot, and I may have had a rough background. Someone else may have had a really strong Christian upbringing and come to Christ at a later point and start maybe way further ahead. And just because I have a rough background, I may cuss and, and yell and, and do all these other problems, and this other person may seem a lot better. That doesn't mean I'm a worse Christian. And then Kyle may come from even further back, right? Right? And, and we, but and the, the tendency among us all like, is, is to say, hey, this person's great, That person, all right, we're not quite sure. But then you see, like maybe Kyle even came from a rougher background. C.S. Lewis says, look, maybe, uh, uh, he uses the example of a Nazi, who Goebbels, who might come to Christ, and he's come from a murderous background. And so he stops doing some of the things he has as Christ begins to develop him. And we would all tend to look at Goebbels, who was one of the worst Nazis ever, and we would say, how in the world could Jesus save this man? Well, he can but you start from a really bad background and you move forward, right? And so we can't quite tell by how a person acts all the time. We look at the fruit of the Spirit beginning to change the person and move them forward. And some Christians are gonna be rougher-edged than other Christians, so we're not looking at all of those things. We're looking for the change and the transformation. And by the way, God has Christians acting in different ways because they're reaching different groups. Some Christians are gonna reach rough biker gangs, Some Christians are going to be in military units in the middle of the jungle and they've got to reach those guys. Some Christians are going to be working in the middle of genocides. Some are going to be working in the middle of concentration camps and they're going to be prisoners. There's people working in all different groups. We're not all made for the same thing. But all of us should be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the love of God should be working out towards others. And if you don't see that in yourself or you don't see that in others... And that's a good mark that they're not a Christian. 1 John 4.13 says this, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Holy Spirit. The love is deeply sacrificial to the point of death, and it means going to one another. And this is even the harder thing. A lot of us might give our lives up for other, but if we have a problem with another, we'll never go to them. Will you go to your brother and sister if you have a problem with them? Or will you pick up your toys and go home? That is the mark of immaturity in Christ, and might I say as a person. If you have a problem with your brother and sister in Christ, go to them and work it out. That is the mark of love, and that is the mark of maturity in the faith. And that's what we're called to do, by the way. If we don't do this, then the Lord will not forgive our sins. Why? Because it's a fundamental lack of understanding at the deepest level of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Listen to this from our Lord himself. Mark eleven twenty-five. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your sins. Ouch. I hate that verse. I don't want to forgive Nathan. He was mean to me. He pulled my hair. He poked me in the eye. He doesn't deserve it. Or whatever. John closes out by telling us that these are the things that we need to understand who we, are, who, uh, uh, who we are in Jesus and have confidence that we are in him. Too many people forget this. Many believers get lost in endless learning and they focus on the ever finer points of theology and they never really do anything with it. Or they'll lose themselves in the power of the spiritual gifts, right? I have all these spiritual gifts, everyone else needs to have them. If we don't have spiritual gifts operating, then we can't possibly be mature right? I've run into others. If we're not talking theologically endlessly and all these books and whatever, then we can't possibly be mature in Christ. Others want spiritual highs and dramatic worship experiences. Others will get lost in the formality of church. I need to be dressed appropriately. I need to have pretty colors all over, frill on my robes. Others will be in the Eucharistic experience and all the experiences of the church. We need to swing incense and do all of these things. Now, all of these things in moderation have their place, but none of them are at the critical center. Notice John doesn't talk about any of those things. And yet, we have denominations that major on all of them. We'll have Christians come in here at different times in our church, or any church, I'm just using our church as an example, and say, hey, we need to be doing it this way, and if we're not... That's really not mature, and I've had people leave over all those reasons, and all churches have that. It's because we think that the way we want it is the mature way to do it. But notice John doesn't say any of those things. That's not the critical center, and this is why I say the longer I've walked with Jesus, the longer I've been in full-time ministry, the more I understand this epistle. So many believers major on the minors, or they get lost on one or two important things, but they miss what John is teaching here. John is teaching, what he's teaching radically changes you. It radically changes how you relate to other people. If you aren't dwelling here in Agape, you're missing everything about the gospel. And if you run into believers who aren't dwelling here, you can be sure that they too are fundamentally missing the boat, if they're believers at all. Now, It's upon this base that the apostle goes on to say, this is where prayer is built. Because once you get this and you're built here, then you fundamentally get what prayer is about. If you're not dwelling here, you don't know what prayer is about. And you're going to struggle with your prayer life. Now, we're going to start when we're new Christians on prayer. I say five minutes in prayer and you just pray, the Lord's going to honor those things. But as you get to understand prayer at its deeper level, you'll begin to sync with God. Get in sync. S Y N C. First John five fourteen to fifteen says this, and this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, and we if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. No, Notice what John says here, if anyone asks according to his will. And this is where so many believers get confused. When Jesus says this in John 14, 12 to 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So a lot of people read this scripture and say, look, I have asked in Jesus' name so they should give me. I want a pony. I want a Ferrari. This whole ministry is built on this. If you believe, you will have it. Now other Christians say, well, that's ridiculous. You need to ask in God's name those things that are good. Now I have been good. I have followed the Lord and I have prayed for things in the Lord's name that are good and are in his will and I didn't get them. God is a meanie. That's again the prayer of a legalist. We may not identify that. I've, I've done this, by the way. So don't get me wrong. I'm preaching to myself here. I have shaken my fist at the sky and said, God, you are a meanie. Why didn't you answer me? We all do this. So don't think I'm pointing. We all do this. It's natural to us. But we're legalists. We have this checklist. I did this and this and this and this. Do you remember the last time you did it? Why didn't God answer me? Well, we have it here. Because we don't read the rest. We don't read what came before this verse. The qualifier is the miracles that Jesus does for others, not the stuff that Jesus does for himself. And the things that Jesus does advances the kingdom of God. Modern Westerners often confuse advancing the kingdom of God with advancing their own personal interests, even when our personal interests have the holiest of intentions. I want to be healed, or we want our mom to be healed, or our child to get married to the right person. I have a back injury, and if God would heal my back injury, that would advance the kingdom of God the best. I know it, but He doesn't do it. So, God is a meanie. I have a head condition. I've prayed, and many people have prayed over it. It doesn't get healed. God is a meanie. But I'm a priest. Shouldn't he advance the kingdom of God that way, but it doesn't happen. Is God a meanie? Hmm Got to ponder that. John Calvin explains what John is saying in First John this way, and we can put that on the screen. By this expression, he meant by the way, uh, by the way to remind us what is right, uh, what is the right way or rule of praying. Even when men subject their own wishes to God. So he's talking about solid Christians who are subjecting their own wishes to God. This is the good folk, these are the ones who are strong. For though God has promised to do whatsoever his people may ask, yet he does not allow them an unbridled liberty to ask whatever may come to their minds. But he has at the same time prescribed to them a law according to which they are to pray. And doubtless, nothing is better for us than this restriction. For if it was allowed for every one of us to ask what he pleased, and if God were to indulge us in our wishes, it would would be to provide very badly for us. For what may be expedient, we know not. Nay, we boil with corrupt and hurtful desires. At our moment, even in weaknesses, we think we know what's best for us, Calvin is saying. But Calvin has learned just like I have in my older age, not oldest age yet, but older age, that I don't always know what's best, and God does. And the more you grow in this agape, you understand that God uses your infirmities for good, and that life is challenge, and that death is beautiful, and that sickness does happen, and that all these things have a purpose. And this purpose is greater than us, And that prayer is for something beyond us. It's for the advancing of the kingdom because God has an eternal perspective and we are finite beings and too often we think like this and that's all we think. And as you begin to become more and more like God, those blinders become like this and they go, you begin to see bigger. You begin to think bigger. You begin to see how small you are and you begin to pray for things that are beyond you. And as those prayers begin to come, as you begin to think like that, you begin to hear from God and you begin to see those prayers answered. When you're a new Christian, you're like this. As you mature in Christ, you should be coming like this. But all too many of us stay like this What's my next job? What's my next this? What's my next that? We don't think eternally. And that's what John is challenging us to do. Think with agape. Think about advancing the kingdom. Think about how you can become more and more Christ-like. And as your perspective becomes increasingly eternal, you'll see a lot of things. And sometimes when I don't hear from God, what I've realized, especially recently on a certain prayer I've been praying, God has actually answered. He answered many, many months ago. I didn't want to hear that answer. It's been months ago. Lord, do you have an answer for me? The answer was months ago. Okay, but it was months ago. Do you have an answer for me? I'm not hearing for you. I said the answer months ago. How many more times, Jeff, do you need this answer? You are dense. Listen to me, boy. You've got the answer. Shut up and do it. Or shut up and put up and go. We've heard it. We know it. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes the answer comes. And we just don't want to hear it. And sometimes the answer doesn't come because we're praying for the wrong thing. Dear Lord, kill my boss because I'm angry at him. He doesn't much care what your plans are. His plans for you and me, and we'll end with this, are far better and deeper than ours. And they impact so much more than we can imagine. And when, it's, when we come to realize this, And our prayers begin to change and align with this and with his. And when that happens, our prayers begin to radically shift. You begin to pray beyond yourselves and your own personal experiences. And you're going to pray for the advance of his kingdom. And you're going to see wonders happen. That's what Jesus is talking about in this gospel. It's glorious. In fact, I saw it this last week at the deliverance conference I was at and I was teaching at. Glorious change. Glorious things happening in people. God is good. He does answer prayers. Amen.